This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. You weren't looking at me. I did smile. You weren't looking at me as I started smiling. Sorry, I was looking down at my notes. <laughs> I just had to uh, banish Kate's nodding queen uh, oh, that, statue. That sound, oh my that God, was, that sounds like really trashy. Nodding queen statue. Tra- right, first oh, off. I'm sorry. First off. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that is that not trashy? That yeah, it's really trashy. Me? But start, start off, it's not a statue. It's a little desktop thing. And it just nods. With with the sunlight that comes in through my window, and it was given to me by an American friend of mine who Obviously. loves Any American person yeah. would buy something like that. <laughs> who loves the royal family and could not get over the fact that we had the queen for tea. But it is trashy. I know it in is a, trashy. in a chintzy. But it's not way. a statue. That makes it sound like it's as big as me. <laughs> okay, figurine, figurine. Ooh. Okay. Uh, anyway, how are you? I'm good. Good week. Yes, good week. Busy week, but a good week. Yeah, all good. Yeah, lot going Happy on. belated anniversary. Thank you very Saw much. Saw a little uh, cheers picture. How many years married? 22 years. What did you get for 22 years? Life? No. Um, <laughs> actually, well, it's supposed to be copper, but I got some very nice underwear. Oh. I know. Oh, Mr. Davis. Yeah, Mr. Davis. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Have you had a good week? Yes, I have. I've been away seeing family, which was all lovely. My mm. husband pretty much saw every family member. Uh, everyone was doing the awkwardness. Do we hug? Do we not hug? But it was lovely. It was obviously all in bouts of the agreed amount of people. Uh, we have my mm-hmm. nephew's permits for uh, my son ate his body weight in sweets. I think I've now got spots for meeting my body weight in sweets. There's just loads <laughs> of sweets. And like, who knew sour and fizzy sweets could be in oh, so many? Amazing. And they had the coolest selfie picture thing that was like this little screen, like your computer screen, and just loads of fun and all the kind of all the props, props. just yeah. brilliant lots of lovely nuss and, and cousins playing and it was it was a real good tonic so yeah all good here and good. um we're sharing an episode with you that Kate and I recorded a couple of months ago we we have these like flurries of activity when we can get hold of people and we're available and I realized we hadn't shared this conversation hence trying to kind of explain what you're about to hear because we caught up with a lovely lady called uh, Dr. Zainab Girton. Now, I've known Zainab for quite a few years and she works at UCL in London and she's always involved in really fascinating projects uh, around women's health. And when all lockdown happened, Zainab and some of her colleagues really got on the case to put out a survey to kind of try and work out how people were feeling, which is what you're going to hear her talk more about. This chat with Zainab, which we recorded in March, but we were waiting to share it because, as you'll know, if you've been listening to the Fertility Podcast, we've been taking on this journey to finding out what could be wrong to that point of having to have treatment. And we thought it was really interesting to share how we'd felt when treatment was halted because of what's going on in in light of you know, the the kind of concerns about rising cases of COVID. And I'm I'm sure that there's probably a little bit of just a niggle. And I don't want to scaremonger, but maybe there's a little niggle with you that, oh my God, is this going to happen again? And and hopefully it absolutely won't because all the necessary precautions and everything were put in place in the clinics and we've been through it. And the, the fertility clinics were able 
to be the first area to reopen, weren't they? Yeah, they were. And I think you're absolutely right. It's because we've got processes in now in place now. I can't see unless anything even more disastrous happened and I did desperately want to touch some wood. In an ideal world, I can't see that the fertility treatments would stop again. I guess it's the main thing is is keeping the NHS not overwhelmed and we've yeah. managed to do that with the vaccination programme. So, And we will be sharing in next week's episode a conversation that we've had, which includes a voice from the HFEA. And we'd actually heard from them that treatment seems to have resumed back to where it was before the pandemic. So it'd be interesting to know whether that is the case with you. Have a listen to Zainab explaining the issues that people were were sharing that they were feeling whilst treatment shut down. I'm sure you will really resonate with a lot of what she says. I'm at UCL at the Institute for Women's Health. And what I wanted to speak to you guys about today is that for the past year, almost year now, we've been working on this project looking at the experiences of fertility patients whose treatments have been delayed or disrupted Mm. due to COVID and really due to the clinic closures that happened at the beginning and the Mm. kind of delays associated with that which has been really you know really interesting pretty overwhelming as well Um, because you know I think the the fact of the matter is of course all these disruptions and lockdowns have been really difficult for everyone but what we've heard a lot from fertility patients is that so much of the coverage has been around young families, you know, difficulties of homeschooling, all of that, you know, mm. a, a lot about, you know, children at home. So for people who are desperately trying to have children, mm. it's been even more alienating and isolating. And, you know, the uncertainty around our clinics going to open, when are they going to open, are waiting lists going to be longer? And all they're hearing on social media and on the news is the experience of parents. Exactly. It's really isolating for them even further, isn't it? And I think that's yeah. from what I hear from my patients, they're sick to death. They don't want to hear any more about homeschooling. If only they could homeschool, you know, that's how they feel. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And just so much around, you know, how hard it is having to look after small children at home, which yeah. of course, you know, if you are somebody who would love to have a small child at home yeah. and are just not in that position, it is a bit galling to have that in your face all the time and that be the dominant narrative. So tell us a bit about what you found out, how many people you got to hear from. And I'm curious as to whether there has been a shift, whether people have actually decided, you know what, I'm not doing this. I'm curious as to whether that has been bubbling because I've seen some conversations where that has definitely Certainly initially, yeah. those conversations I definitely heard. And then and then as time went by, I was hearing more, oh, no, we just can't, we, know, we, don't, we don't want to wait. We're just wasting time. We may as well just get on with it. But I don't know, has that been your experience? Well, so what we did was we launched our questionnaire pretty quickly. This, is a, this was a team of us, a, a multidisciplinary team of six people, including clinicians and counsellor and psychologist and So we sort of did a very rapid response online anonymous questionnaire. And it's a long questionnaire, had lots of questions. Some of them were quantitative items where we, you know, we could could compare responses among people. And then we also had lots of open text responses where we said, you know, tell us in your own words, how have you felt? How has this impacted your relationship? How has it impacted what you want to do in the future? And it's really interesting. There was a huge mixture of responses although I have to say for many people it was underlined with a sense that the treatment was extremely important and it was a huge priority 
And in fact, you know, when we ask people questions around, are you concerned about COVID? Are you concerned about the virus or restarting treatment, having to travel to a clinic? You know, the dominant responses we had were of people saying, I'm much less concerned about COVID than about my declining fertility. And, you know, some really poignant responses from people saying, I don't know how long this thing is going to last. Because if you take your mind back, you know, when we went into the first lockdown, there was really very little clarity about whether we were going to be in a full lockdown for two months or five months or, you know. Well, I think we, 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 were, we were told, weren't we? And I think we all believed, oh, it'll be, it'll be gone in a couple of weeks. We're back to normal. And then the women didn't mind actually thinking, right, OK, well, maybe it's just going to be a couple of months. So whatever, I, we won't try for a bit. And we'll we'll stop and we'll just wait and see what happens. And then as it went on and on and on, you can completely understand that women are going to say, no, this is ridiculous. I can't, I can't delay any longer. This is too dangerous for me to delay any longer. Otherwise I could end up not having my family. Um, So precisely, we had some really heartbreaking responses from people saying, you know, I don't want to look back and, and think that this virus and the, the disruptions of this year is what robbed me of my last chance to become a parent, you know, which is really difficult because already dealing with fertility issues is really taxing. It's really difficult. It robs you of a sense of control and a sense of being able to plan your life trajectory. And on top of that, there was this other kind of global disruption that was happening that really left people feeling, you know, I really don't know how to sort of navigate this. As you say, there were a few responses from people, especially people who'd been having fertility treatment for quite a long time already saying, you know what, actually, it's not a terrible thing to be forced to kind of pause for a few months. And some people saying, you know what, I haven't really enjoyed a glass of wine for years, because I'm always either trying or preparing my body or and now I've been, you know, things have stopped. So it's it's a little bit like, oh, I have this opportunity to take a breath and not feel guilty about it, a pause. But then the real tension started to arise when when the HFEA announcement came saying clinics could start to reopen. And of course, what patients discovered was some clinics were reopening, some clinics were not reopening. They couldn't find out when their clinic was going to open. You know, some NHS clinics, they really could not even access anybody to ask the question, are you going to open or when might you open? Because a lot of the staff had been deployed elsewhere in the NHS. And then, you know, in a lot of these online chat boards, suddenly people were not all in the same boat. Some people were saying, my clinic's reopened, I've got an appointment for next week. And others were saying, well, I've not heard anything from my clinic. So then the anxiety was really starting to build up around what a waiting list is going to look like. And, you know, are we going to be able to kind of get back? Is our clinic even going to remember that we were about to start a cycle? Are they going to be overwhelmed? And I'm still seeing that now. I'm still seeing that women are hearing that there's a massive waiting list to, to restart treatments, which is sad i can completely understand why that's the case but it's sad that even now when we, treatments have been restarted for this length of time there's still this delay in accessing their treatment and there's conversations of people who might be starting treatment they might be trying to understand about having the vaccine they might have been told they are eligible for the vaccine and then they don't know the impact that that has on their treatment or they're then being asked if they're going to do a frozen embryo transfer so there's quite a lot of different variables that are now factoring into people's decision making and we know that time is so not your friend 
we talked about it being a bit of a friend during the lockdown in that people had a bit of time to think, but ultimately we know that it, it, it isn't. H- how long were you running the the research for? Like when, because I know it's not long finished, has it? We're speaking in March. And the questionnaire uh, was actually live for six weeks during May and June of last year. So it was really that period where many clinics were closed, some clinics were starting to reopen. And so we were able to get people's responses to that kind of really the heat of the disruption and lockdown period. There were some aspects of this research that we obviously intuited going into it, the fact that uh, time and waiting was going to be anxiety inducing for some patients, as we know from, you know, what, what we know about fertility treatments in general. But there, there have been other aspects to this story that were much less expected. And, and like you say, you know, different elements to people's thinking. So one aspect that we hadn't anticipated were lots of considerations coming up regarding employment. So those people who were essential workers suddenly found that goodness, you know, there was, there's this virus and they still have to go out because they're essential workers, in some cases, nurses. And so, you know, they have this priority of wanting to undertake fertility treatments soon, yet they're very aware that they're having to expose themselves potentially to this virus. And if you think back to, you know, May, June last year, we really didn't know what the impact was going to be on fertility or on pregnancies or unborn babies. And also, you know, essential workers saying it was becoming much more difficult to try and take time off work or if you're a nurse to try to be in a non-COVID ward. So that was one side of the story. And the other side of the story for those people who were furloughed or whose work became more precarious, you know, concerns around finances and concerns around, you know, how difficult it is. It's difficult at the best of times to tell your employer that you're thinking about undergoing fertility treatment. But this added layer making it more difficult at a time when people are becoming made redundant and furloughed. So people feeling anxious about, you know, how secure their employment was and what impact that might have on, uh, you know, their decisions about building a family. So lots of complicated considerations built into to this issue, definitely. On the other side of that, I was really interested, Natalie, in the research that you guys did in Fertility Matters at Work about how women felt that lockdown and working from home had actually made it easier during their fertility treatment. That's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a conversation that I've seen continue that people have felt that there's not that hiding aspect of this because of there being, you know, less engagement with your colleagues and so you can do that side of things separately but I've also had conversations in my coaching work with with clients who are staying in in work because of what you've just described Zainab they've they've been furloughed they don't want to rock the boat at Mm. all when they have Mm. you know monetary commitments going out each month towards their treatment so the outcome of this from what you've found it's it's a a a really in-depth toll on people's emotional well-being isn't it that I don't quite think we understand the extent of yet do we yeah I mean so the the kind of the words that people really use to describe how they felt were powerless helpless frustrated anxious and of course you know we can we can understand yes of course it's going to be frustrating but the really the intensity of feelings a lot of people reported about this 
was really heartbreaking. So I've got a couple of quotes. Would you mind if I read them for you from our study? No, please. I'd love to hear them. So just a few which I think really convey the, the, the intensity of emotion. So one woman wrote, when I heard the clinic was going to close, I was completely devastated. My partner isn't getting any younger and further delays to our treatment was beyond belief. It was a particularly bitter pill to swallow with all the jokes around lockdown baby boom. Another says, it made us feel as though our lives were on hold once again, and that our dream of becoming parents was even further out of reach. I was so heartbroken to have come so close to making it happen, and then it was whipped away from us. And a third says, I feel panicked and desperate. I'm worried that by the time I next get a chance, it will be too late. I find the uncertainty of how long the wait will be unbearable. I will be last in the queue after those who are in the middle of treatment. So, you know, these really strong feelings, Mm. you know, one of the stories that we heard again and again from people were that this wasn't just a disruption that they'd come across, you know, that this was yet another disruption. People had lots of long stories around having suffered previous losses or having had to halt their treatment for financial reasons or for other, you know, family caring responsibilities. One woman spoke about how her mother was having cancer treatment last year, so they'd stopped treatment the year before so she could care for her mother. And now there was this or other, you know, other patients talking about having to undergo, you know, surgeries for fibroids or this or that. And then this was just at the point where they were about to begin treatment. Here was this other thing. And of course, on the one hand, it was, a, you know, a fairly universal experience for all of us. The whole world was halted by COVID. But a very personal feeling that, gosh, you know, the world is against us. We were just about to get there and now it's been whipped away from us again. So very strong emotions coming up for people. I mean, do we think, the three of us, that the pain of this is properly understood by the powers that be? I mean, we know that there's been various campaigns throughout the pandemic to have certain voices heard. I mean, my initial thoughts go to the whole flexible working and I'm not just talking about that for parents because obviously in this context it's it's been proven that flexibility of working is paramount for people going through infertility struggles and it's it's something from the from the work that we do with our fertility matters at work research people often felt that they were denied access to appointments or what have you because they were told they couldn't work from home and that and it was one of the biggest things that we know people want in the workplace so we've got that kind of conversation now happening but I don't know who's looking out for the people that have been affected during lockdown with their fertility treatment apart from us who are in the space having these conversations and when we talk about the mental health impact of the pandemic anyway I, I I feel like the impact of people who might well have lost out on their chance to have a family has been totally overlooked. I think, sadly, I don't think we'll see that realization yet. We won't. That reality won't come to us yet. I think we're we're still we're still a long way off from actually getting over the COVID crisis. Okay, the the end is in sight. We hope there is that glimmer of hope there, but I don't think we'll fully appreciate and understand the impact of this yet. I think we're way off that but like you say who is apart from us kind of talking about it and and trying to garner I guess people to start considering the fallout who is gonna be there to pick up the pieces and probably nobody right I mean I think that's 
that's so, uh, it's so frustrating, really, because there are aspects of this experience that are unavoidable. And then there are other aspects like the support side of things or the understanding or the social sensitivity, which you would, you would have hoped that we would have got past by now. But again, you know, that was a huge part of the responses we heard. So people talked about their usual sources of support, friends, family, social media and clinics. And Although uh, I have to say, as a, as a kind of opposite example, most of our respondents wrote about what, what a great source of support their partners were. But aside from that, it was really difficult to receive support. So friends and family often didn't understand. Friends who had young children, there were many stories of people being insensitive unintentionally. So work colleagues or friends saying things like, well, at least you're lucky you don't have to homeschool, you know, which... It's said, it's, it's said to try and be understanding, but that's such a hurtful comment if what you want more than anything is to have a child that you are looking after and homeschooling. Mm. Um, sometimes family members said things like, well, now is not the right time to be thinking about this anyway. You know, you shouldn't be thinking about that in the middle of a pandemic and there's this virus. And again, people felt that that expressed a distinct lack of empathy to, in terms of mm. how important this was for them, that this wasn't something frivolous that they were you know, they weren't saying, I want to go shopping on Oxford Street in the middle of a pandemic. They were saying, it's really important for me to try to have a child. And then really perhaps the the key place where we would have expected there to have been support, the clinics, really based on our research, we can say they fell short. And so there were three major areas of complaints that our respondents had about the lack of support from clinics. And those were lack of com- communication and information about what was happening and timelines and things like that. Inability to access staff, so inability to get hold of phone numbers or emails bouncing back and things like that. And then thirdly, most painfully, a perceived lack of care and empathy. So again, I've got some examples and some of these were just absolutely shocking to me because this is not an unavoidable delay. This is something that shouldn't have happened. So one person said, our appointment cancellation notification consisted of a copy of our next appointment letter marked with a big black line through it and stamped cancelled. No reassurance or explanation of next steps or managing our expectations. A severe lack of empathy. I mean, that shouldn't be the way that patients are getting communication about their appointment cancellations. Another person talked about how when they tried to get hold of the clinic, they were made to feel like a pain you know, why are you calling again? We've told you the clinic is closed. And they were like, well, I'm calling because I'm trying to find out, you know, because people didn't know when websites might be updated. And and also because people like Kate and I kept saying, call your clinics, call your clinics. Because that's what the HFEA told us to tell them. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But it's just, you know, again, another woman um, told us about she didn't know how her clinic would contact her when the clinic decided to reopen. So every morning, the first thing she did was check the mail, check her phone for messages, go on the clinic website and start refreshing the website, which is, you know, it's it's such an additional burden. On the opposite side, where clinics did offer support in the form of Zoom meetings or Facebook groups, or even, you know, updates on Instagram, that was really appreciated by patients. So I think that's a really important take-home message for clinics is that, this thing, these things, uh, you know, being patient centered doesn't have to cost the earth, you know, to have a counselor or a patient supporter who's holding a Zoom meeting once a week is an enormous help and reassurance for patients and makes them feel that 
they're connected, they've not been forgotten about, they've got a place to check in and meet up with other people going through similar things. Well, both Natalie and I heard loads, you know, all the the three things that you've said there, that patients were disappointed or frustrated and anxious with regards to their clinic response. We heard that all the time, didn't we, Natalie? Mm. Do you think that clinics will will learn from this going forward? I mean, goodness, we hope we never have a COVID crisis again, but actually it's really possible that we might. So do you think that they've learned even if it's not in a, in a crisis, they've learned to have better communication. Because I think generally communication with clinics pre-COVID was pretty rubbish. They weren't great mm. at communicating with their patients. So do you think they'll have learned and will improve for the future? I really hope so. I mean, it's certainly been one of our big motivations to try and get this message out to industry. So it's, this is not just an academic study, but it's one that, because there are these very clear take-home messages that are easy to implement So I really hope clinics will start acting on them. Some of them have told us that they have been. And as you say, I mean, we hope not to have something like this again, but it's very probable that we will have other disruptions in the future. So it's important to put these mechanisms into place now so that, you know, we're not kind of scrabbling for methods and means of dealing with things when when we're in a point of crisis. I think that's really important. You know, clinics just saying to patients, Uh, we have no information, check the HFEA website. Well, that's not really good enough. You know, these are your patients and you have a duty of care towards. Especially when the the HFEA is saying contact your clinic. So it was just, it was, we knew Natalie, didn't we? It was just going round and round in circles and no one was communicating. I think those clinics that did embrace the digital communication that was necessary will be remembered. And word of mouth, you know, is, is a powerful thing within this particular type of treatment and hopefully people will be encouraged to give their feedback to the HFEA as well and so people can continue to you know look back at what people have said and and hopefully they'll learn yeah I think so the one thing that there has been a lot of during this crisis is there have been a lot of loud voices within the fertility community of former patients and influencers and people sharing information and talking and and there's just no excuse for the clinics to not be able to to communicate, even if they can't function as they'd want to, there's no excuse for them not to be able to communicate. Yeah. And I think what some clinics don't necessarily realize very clearly is that this impacts the level of trust that your patients have in you. So if you've been particularly bad at supporting your patients during this crisis, then even if the patient stays with your clinic, it's going to impact their treatment because it's going to impact how they feel about the clinic, how they feel about, you know, the amount of trust they can put in that place. And certainly we did hear in some cases, patients deciding that they would change clinics. And some of them did say, you know, my clinic didn't provide any support, but I was able to join XYZ Zoom meeting or Facebook group because a friend was having treatment elsewhere and that was wonderful. So, you know, even if you just think about it from a business perspective, it makes sense for clinics to put their attention in terms of patient welfare. Yeah, I think it's been a very interesting case study of crisis management at its weakest. (laughs) I won't say worst, but weakest. And hopefully a lot will be taken from these types of conversations. So thank you, Zainab, for sharing what you've found out. And and I'm I'm so glad that, you know, you you acted on it and you you got that survey out there and and that you got those those results. What was the sample size? 
It was 457 women who were receiving fertility treatment in the UK. And I just want to, as a takeaway, I guess one of the things I really want to say, which I think the the people like you do a really important job of promoting this idea is that for a lot of these women who were going through a very difficult time, they felt extremely alone in their experience, which exacerbates feelings of loneliness, feelings of unfairness, feelings of, you know, being outside or dejected or, you know, and I think it's really important and to some degree uh, a small comfort to know that those feelings were not isolated experiences. So many, there were so many fertility patients. There are still so many fertility patients that have been impacted by COVID-related delays. And for a lot of them, it's been a very difficult experience. So if you are a woman who's been facing that and you felt very low and anxious about it, then I think it's really important to know that that's perfectly normal and to be expected in the face of such a difficult experience. And also, Zainab, what I think is really powerful is that you, through your study and the questionnaire, you gave those women who felt that they weren't being heard the opportunity to be heard. And that's so important because it makes them hopefully help them feel that actually their their feelings and their fears were completely justified and having that ability to express them, I guess, quite cathartic as well. Mm. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the respondents did actually write that at the end of the questionnaire. They said that it had been very helpful and they really appreciated it, that to have the opportunity to voice their opinions. And for us, it's really important that now we do our best to make sure we give that message to the HFEA, we give that message to the clinics and we, you know, talk about the things that these women have said and, you, you know, make sure their voices do reach the places where decisions are made and change can happen. So we extremely, you know, we really appreciate that they took the time to tell us their stories. So what happens now with what you found out? What's your next step? So part of what happens now is, as, as is the case in academia, we, we will publish our findings in peer-reviewed academic journals, which is a lengthy process. And because that's a lengthy process, it's a sort of it tends to take many months to go through peer review. Uh, in the meantime, we're doing, you know, consultations with clinics and speaking to the media. And we had a um, Progress Educational Trust event recently. So we're also trying to get the message out to the people who it's most relevant for, including the patients and also the clinicians and counsellors and those people who work with fertility patients. So, Kate, that chat with Zaina, which I sent to you to have a listen to on your dog walk, and you had no memory of having the chat. No, at all, sorry, Zainab. How rude of me. I think I must have been having a bad day that day. But it definitely was you. It definitely it, was you. It was, was my voice. To it was definitely, yeah. I remember you there. I know. And do you know what? When I was listening to it on my dog walk, I suddenly heard my voice. I was like, oh my God, I don't remember you think this. you it was one I'd done without you? Yes, genuinely. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Zainab, if you're listening. I am so sorry. Sorry. But that's not to say you weren't interested in the conversation when it was happening. You just don't remember it. That's fine. I was massively interested in it. What do you think in, has changed in, in, in terms of what Zainab was saying, where we are now? So we spoke to her in March. We're talking in June we mentioned at the start, you know, that maybe there is a little bit of anxiety rising again as we hear the news, you know, that COVID cases are rising, but we're, we're fully we're fully underway with the vaccine. You talk all the time about how you definitely think industry advice is for people trying to conceive to have the vaccine. Mm, mm. So that shouldn't stand in your way. No. And I, th- I think that I think to answer your question, that's where things have changed, definitely with that. And therefore, we're OK. The treatments are 
are carrying on. We're, I think we're in a good place. I think where we haven't changed, and this really struck me, bearing in mind we were talking with Zainat in March and we're now June, no one is supporting these patients that have gone through the trauma of having their treatments cancelled still. You know, there is, and I'm not pointing the finger at anybody because I, it's probably not possible to reach out and support those people. But, you know, I think one of the questions was, I think you said, who is there to pick up the pieces? Well, I don't think there is anybody. And I, like I said, it's it's not for want of trying. I just don't think there physically is anybody to pick up those pieces. And I think I, in, in the chat with Zainab, I, said, I think I said that we, we haven't yet seen the fallout of this situation. And I don't think we're even there yet. And I suppose what worries me is that we'd already know that women who go through a protracted fertility journey and IVF treatment are more likely to have postnatal depression once they have had their baby. And obviously that's just looking at women who are successful in their treatments, but I just wonder whether this now and the disappointment they had over that time and the anxieties, will that show up later on? Especially if they haven't been able to have treatment and they've had to exactly. maybe just accept, or they've had treatment that's failed and that was the last attempt due to the... due to time i mean there's just such complexities in what we have to deal with and then we've been mm. when we're faced with all that's gone on like you say i mean i don't know who the special person is that could come in and save the day and wave a magic wand i don't think there is anybody natalie and that that's what's scary really i guess it's down to us not us it's i guess it's down to us as individuals to well i guess it's down to highlighting that as you've heard in this conversation you're not alone in how you're feeling and so by validating your feelings knowing others feel the same, that hopefully will help a bit, but then reaching out to get support and not try and process this on your own, whether that's peer support or or professional support. I think yeah. that's just the key takeaway we can give. But on mm. a lighter note, you can always come to us and ask us your questions and we'll do our best to signpost you. You can follow me at Fertility Poddy on Insta and Twitter. And me on Insta at Your Fertility Journey. And you can also let us know your questions to our expert, James Nicopoulos. Here he is again. Ask the expert. 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 I love this this next question. This one's a great one. Why do you need to use a first morning urine sample for a HCG pregnancy test, but a mid-morning urine sample for a LH ovulation test? Uh, my answer is I've got absolutely no idea <laughs> and I didn't know you did have to. Is the honest answer? Oh, Kate. I've no, I didn't know you did. I find that really quite bizarre as well, that some, I don't think all, but some ovulation kits suggest testing for LH at lunchtime, because I think they, I don't know whether this is true, but their rationale behind it is that there's a peak in luteinizing hormone around, uh, kind of mid. Yeah, it must be a diurnal variation. It must be that LH, and I, and I just can't remember my physiology, but that would make sense. But I think, I think the key is that, People don't get too stressed out about it because it just strikes me as something just to frustrate people even more. Totally. But it's probably that you know, the urine is most concentrated in the morning, so it's great for HCG, and you probably get an LH peak diurnally and around lunchtime. That probably makes most sense. I put I put my I reengage my brain, and that probably makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I, th I think there is, but I mean, as I always say, LH sticks are just you literally pe peeing money yeah. down the drain. Don't bother with them. Couldn't agree with you more. Ask the expert. 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 Ask the expert.
Thank you, thank you for listening. I hope you found that episode interesting. It's one that's got lots of interesting information with it, so check out the show notes because Zainet has produced some posters which will be there for you to download. They're like PDFs with lots of interesting findings. There isn't anywhere that the findings are available just yet, but we will keep you posted as and when they are. Make sure you come and join us next week because we've got a really fascinating conversation talking about the new CMI, CMI, BPI, AFG, OPG, (laughs) OMG, B, Y, O, B. And what is it? AC12. Let's get AC12 in there. (laughs) Make sure you join us next week because we are discussing the new CMA guidelines with a panel. A panel. We've got a foray of of guests and we look forward to uh, hearing your thoughts on that. Thank you as always. And until the next time. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.